I'm Gina Asher. Welcome to WFIU's Profiles. Profiles is a weekly program that introduces members of our community, as well as notable visiting artists, scholars, and entertainers, to the WFIU audience. Our guest today is Connie Rufenbarger, a breast cancer advocate who's helped launch the world's only repository for healthy breast tissue. The Komen Tissue Bank is unique because it collects healthy breast tissue from volunteers, which researchers around the globe compare to cancerous tissue to try to find out how cancer forms. Welcome, Connie Rufenbarger. Thank you for having me. We're all aware of the threat of breast cancer, thanks to all these pink ribbons and awareness campaigns and other events. Most of these collect money for research, but the donors to the Komen Tissue Bank actually are the research. Tell us a bit about the tissue bank. The tissue bank is a a concept that's become so familiar to me, but I do find that people wonder what exactly is a tissue bank and what do you mean, how do you define tissue? And tissue can be anything. It It can be skin, it can be saliva, it can be blood. But in this case, it's a collection of blood and tissue. And what we actually do is is make a very small incision in a woman's breast. And these are women without evidence of breast cancer, healthy, normal breast tissue. And put a very small gauge needle into the breast, and then there's suction, and it actually pulls tissue out of the breast. Very small amount, probably about three what we call cores. And this tissue is then banked. So we, we call it a tissue bank, but it is also a biorepository, meaning a collection or uh, safekeeping of biospecimens. So we have a little trouble sometimes with our two different uh, phrases, but it is a tissue bank storing tissue for future research. And it started, the Common Tissue Bank started in 2007, and to date has accumulated uh, nearly 2,000 samples. That's a lot of volunteer women. So many people who become advocates for a cause like this do so because they have a personal connection, either their own experiences or that of loved ones or friends. How did this evolution to creating this unique repository, how did this happen for you? I was diagnosed when I was 34, which was 30 years ago. It shocks me to say that. And then I had a second breast cancer. uh, Actually, we have two breasts, so that's not all that unusual, when I was 52. And I was just very, very blessed because being diagnosed at 34 often could impose a higher risk on you for being a, a more difficult type of cancer to treat. But I was just very, very fortunate. I survived. This was back before there was a lot of education and knowledge, so I was kind of flying blind as far as what this really meant to be a 34-year-old breast cancer survivor. I had to really reach into medical literature to get educated. Uh, I became known in the small community I grew up in for having had breast cancer, so women would come to me, ask for help. How do you get prosthesis wigs? They were going through chemotherapy, looking for resources. So I began to realize that I might as well figure it out because people needed answers. And I helped to develop a a pharmacy in town, was wonderful, and they started a a nice clinic with a nurse to do fittings for bras and prosthesis. And then one of the local physicians who was actually a gynecologist approached me because he said, you know, my women think that I'm in charge of their breasts, that, you know, that your gynecologist is the person. But he said, we really did not have a great deal of training in this. And women often use their gynecologist as their primary care physician. So he felt responsible, and he was finding lumps, and they were being diagnosed as breast cancer. And he said, I have nothing to give these women, and they looked to him for answers. Would you work with my breast cancer patients? So I, that's how I really got into becoming um, an active consumer representative or advocate. And then he said, you know, you're spending so much time with these women, we need to get you educated. So he sent me all over the country to every breast cancer meeting that was going on, and it was like going back to school, and it was very exciting. And the timing was unique because it was about the time that the National Breast Cancer Coalition came along, and this is when a group of advocates got together and decided they were going to make a huge difference, and it it was a global uh, initiative, and I started the Indiana Breast Cancer Coalition, and we lobbied in Washington. We now have the Department of Defense Breast Cancer Research Fund, which is the largest single funder of breast cancer research in the world, non-public. Coleman is the largest uh, public 
consumer-driven funder of breast cancer research. And so I entered into a world that was primarily clinical oncologist, radiologist, surgeons, surgical oncologist, and there were just a few of us who were actually patients, and then we became patient representatives. So it was a lot of it was timing and unique opportunities. And then because I had raised my children by the time this was all happening, although they were little when I was diagnosed, I had the freedom and the ability to do the traveling and the work that that took. So it was really kind of a grassroots thing with your local doctor and then very much this woman-to-woman progression. Um, but you also obviously had to have the skills and the the research interests to really absorb all of this information. Because those of us who have, anyone who's been with a doctor sometimes is feeling a little bit uneducated, you know, has a lot of questions. Um, so I can't imagine the, the research ramping up that you had to do to stay up with what you were learning from these authorities. Well, I was an English major and a psychology minor in by training. So teaching was something that I absolutely loved. However, like a lot of women in my generation, I became a te- I really wanted to be a physician or a scientist. Ah, I was, now we see. But I was horrible <laughs> at physics, horrible at some of the, the things that I would have had to master, and I didn't enjoy them. I also was in love with my high school sweetheart, and I wanted to get married and have children. And back then, the wisdom was if you were a teacher, then you could stay home in the summer and raise your children. So learning and teaching and studying were second nature to me in writing. And then when Dr. Cross sent me around the country, I was better prepared simply because there was no lay literature. So the only literature that I'd had available to learn about my disease was medical literature. So again, it was it was a unique combination of timing and circumstance. So by training, by background, by the only resources available to me, I was very, very comfortable with the medical um, vernacular, with, with the vocabulary, and I loved the meetings. I found them so invigorating and so exciting because I was learning, I was understanding, I was working with the best in the country, and it moved me into projects in New York with Amy Langer and the Department of Defense. I've been on government panels. So you, it was learning. It was getting to have a voice because all advocates today, if we sat at a table, have an equal vote. If I'm reading grants, when we vote on the grant up or down, my vote counts as much as any physician at the table. So it made me feel as though I was participating in forward movement and I was able then to take that knowledge back to the, the women that I worked with and that, that called me and share some of that. But we also were making a huge political footprint that had never been made before. We're, the National Breast Cancer Coalition is one of the largest and most successful grassroots lobbying efforts in the country. And that was something I had never experienced before. And it it made me feel not so much like a victim. They talk about being a cancer victim, but um, an activist. I wanted to see an end. And then you brought that back to Indiana with the Catherine Peachy Fund. When we started the Indiana Breast Cancer Coalition, I met Kathy Peachy in Indianapolis. She was a patient of Dr. Sledges and Bob Goulet at IU. She was in late-stage disease. And we started lobbying in Indiana. And the first thing we did was lobby for an off-label drug bill called Taxol, which was not on-label for breast cancer patients, but George wanted to use it for Kathy. So Kathy was bald. We took her beautiful children. We took Kathy bald with an IV pole because she had to have her IV pole. And several of us, and George came with us to the state capitol. And the room was full of legislators and insurance people because the insurance people obviously were concerned about paying for a drug off-label. And Kathy testified so eloquently, and George testified. And we actually passed the off-label drug bill in Indiana, which all of a sudden I'm going, oh, my gosh, I'm a lobbyist. That was great fun. (laughs) But Kathy went on to lose her battle with breast cancer, and as she was dying, she said, you know, I've got beautiful daughters. I've loved the lobbying. She lobbied in Washington with us. And you must continue the fight. And that's where the Catherine Peachy Fund came in. And I turned to George Sledge, who's one of the leader, leading medical oncologists in the country, and I said, we're going to raise money, and I need you to help me understand what unmet needs you have. 
And he said, one of the hardest things to do is if you have a good idea to get seed money. You can get money if you have data, but you can't get data unless you have money. And the first thing we bought for George, uh, Dr. Sledge, was a microscope for his research in anti-angiogenic drugs. They could call us and get twenty or $30,000, a commitment, in one day. But to raise the money and write a grant to get that could have taken six months to a year. So we started filling in those gaps. And then the next thing I asked him was, you know, uh, funding the, the research is good. Is there another unmet need. And we had just coincidentally done a cookbook. And it was called Just Peachy Cooking Up a Cure. And we sold 57,000 copies, oh my gosh. which is so funny. I ended up on QVC. And I mean, <laughs> breast cancer has taken me places I never thought I would go. But it gave us quite a nice amount of money. And George said that in Indiana, you have Purdue, which is a comprehensive cancer research uh, institute, part of the government. There was research at Notre Dame. There was research at in Terre Haute. I mean, there was research going on in Indiana, but the researchers were doing it in different areas that impacted breast, but they weren't necessarily clinicians. So wonderful research was being done, but they didn't know each other. They would read each other's articles. If you have a meeting that's paid for and driven and organized by consumers, it's not seen as an IU meeting or a Purdue meeting. And we started bringing them together at the Amelia Project, An- another dear friend as she was dying. I've learned not to talk to them as they're leaving. <laughs> talk to them before they go because they ask you to do something and you have to do it. She wanted us to keep fighting for her daughter, Amelia. So we created the Amelia Project, and it's in its 14th year, and it brings researchers together from all over Indiana. And that was actually where the tissue bank was born. I was just going to ask you, what was your aha moment that led to the, the tissue bank? In 2005, at the Amelia Project, uh, we had a wonderful keynote speaker. Her name is Dr. Warder McCaskill-Stevens. She's a medical on- oncologist who had actually worked at IU but had gone to the NCI, and she came back to be our keynote speaker. And when she was done, one of our funded scientists, Mei Wei, asked her, she said, I'm funded, I've got an idea, I've got money, but I need normal tissue. I've approached the NCI, do you know when I'll get it? And Warder looked at her and just said, you won't. You'll wait a long time. What exists is siloed. And in research, if you collect tissue, you put it in your own freezer. It's rare. It's expensive. It's it's valuable. And you use it for your experiments. And so she said, I don't believe you'll get it. And that was my aha moment. The neat thing about being a consumer advocate and not getting paid is you can't get fired. <laughs> and I stood up and I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. The other thing is since I sponsored the meeting, yeah, they had I felt to like I get. To you. Yeah, I, well, at least they couldn't <laughs> tell me to sit down. And I said, I, I know that women will give you what you need. We can make this happen. You can do the research, but we can get the tissue. And the women all were like, "Yeah, what do you need? We'll be there." Well, a lot of people are inspired when they're at a meeting and they hear somebody and they think, "Gee, we should be able to do that." But you actually kicked this into action. How did you bring together all, and there are many uh, different organizations kind of involved in this, either through funding or or action, but how did you pull all this together? Well, I think that IU deserves a lot of credit for that. Steve Williams, who has passed away, was the director of the, the IU Cancer Center, a fabulous man. I could walk into his office without an appointment, sit down. He'd look over his glasses and give me that smile. He'd go, Connie, what do you want? I mean, he it was like talking to a friend. And George had already started working up with the consumers, with Kathy Peachy and our lobbying efforts long before consumers were part of the program. So we already had a lovely relationship. I'd already raised a lot of money, so that helps you have a lovely relationship. Yes, it does. And so I already had access. I knew the people. As a mother who had was diagnosed at 34 and having a daughter, my real concern was, what happens with my daughter now? And so I had approached uh, Dr. Anna Maria Storniolo. One of her first days at IU, I was sitting in a room with Steve Williams, and he said he had wanted Anna Maria and I to meet. And she must have been scared stiff, like, who is this woman? And about halfway through the conversation, I was really liking her. She was spunky, and she was sharp. And I said, you know, if I raise the money, would you consider starting a breast cancer prevention program? Because Prevention of breast cancer is the ultimate goal. It was also at that time almost a dirty word because it was all about treating breast cancer. They were very 
aware of the fact they were a long way from understanding what caused it. So how are you going to prevent it? And you'd have to know Anna Maria to understand this. She sat back and she said, well, that's very interesting. Can I have time to think about it? And I thought, oh, I'm toast. There is no way if I give this woman time to think about this that she's going to come back and say yes. But she did. And then I thought, okay, now you got to raise the money. And I knew it would take about a million dollars, which is a lot of money. That's a daunting task, even for someone who has the, the network and the background. But I met this wonderful woman from Lilly. Her name is Linda House. She's still in the Indianapolis area. And um, we had a meeting, and within a half an hour, it's the first time we'd ever met, I told her my idea. And she said, well, I'll tell you what, I can't give you a million dollars. You raise half, and I'll raise half. My goodness. So I went back to Warsaw, and the amazing community did walks, day at the lake. We did concerts. We did quilts. We had cookbook money. And within now, four you're, years— You're talking Warsaw, Indiana. Warsaw, I want Indiana. listeners to be clear, okay. which is a small town. Very small and you're, town. And you're talking half a million dollars. Well, it's a small town, but it's the orthopedic capital of the world. Is it? So we have a very low unemployment rate, and we have a very health— minded, motivated community and a nice financial base there. And everyone's been touched by breast cancer, it seems, in one way or another. And the women in Warsaw, and I could name 50 of them, got behind it. And uh, we had four years to do it. So our goal was to, we got sponsors from all of the different companies, and we put on huge events. And we just drove ourselves crazy, but we had a ball doing it. We became very, very good friends. And every year, we had to come up with enough money to get that match from Lily. And we did it. And we had the $1 million endowment. And that created one of the very first in the country, breast cancer prevention programs. So that relationship with Anna Maria was how I tagged her. (laughs) (laughs) After the Amelia Project, I went to her. I went to Steve Williams first, and I said, this is what I want to do, and I believe I can bring the women. The and volunteers, the donors. The donors. I can bring the donors. And he looked over his glasses at me, and he said, Connie, a biorepository is a big deal. You don't understand the magnitude of the requirements. And I said, I know, but you guys are really smart, and you can handle that, and I'll raise some money and bring the women. He said, I will not stop you, which he could have, because it, w- it, it was going to involve his people and mm-hmm. his buildings and his you know science researchers. He said, I will help you where I can. You have my permission and my blessing to move forward. I walked down the hall to Anna Maria's office, and I said, Dr. Sterniello, I believe we need to have a, you owe normal- me an answer. <laughs> <laughs> a normal tissue bank. And she said, sure. She said, we'll, we'll start where we have to start. You have to start with the ethics. You have to start with all of the legal issues because a biorepository is a sacred trust. There are scientific issues. There are standard operating procedures. What I learned is that the world of biorepositories is a whole different area of medicine. But she said, we need to take our time. Well, it just so happened, about two weeks later, I was down talking to George Sledge about the Amelia Project working on the agenda. And he said, I've got a young scientist, Dr. Brian Schneider who needs normal samples for a trial that he's doing. And he can do it the regular way and take five or six years and collect them. Or maybe we could use this biorepository concept. So he walked me down the hall to Brian's office. And Brian's so sweet. He said, Connie, this is really great. I really appreciate it. Good idea. We can all work on this, but we're going to have to do this next year. And I, he, I we've got him on tape saying... I guess I said, well, but you don't understand, Brian. I want to do it now. And he he said, hadn't met you, had he? No. No, this was his first encounter with me, which I guess I've been told is not always easy. <laughs> it's interesting, but not easy. But I knew that another year is another 40,000 women. Every year we take to do this, it's 40,000 women dead. And that's the number of women who die, die from every year. Cancer. Over 200,000 are diagnosed every year, and 40,000 are are dead. So to me, a year is a lot. I understand it in researchers' terms, but anyway, so dear sweet Brian, all of a sudden he's hooked. So I've got Anna Maria, I've got Steve Williams, I've got George, but I need, he said, the hardest thing about all of this is that software and data sets for collecting and tracking tissue are rigid. They're not very flexible. And how we collect this tissue and how we catalog it so that we know what's 
in what each woman is like and all of that is is a, is kind of a a difficult challenge. He introduced me to a young woman who kind of shied away and ran down the hall. <laughs> she had heard of you. She knew what I wanted, and I, I think she thought she probably didn't have time in, in all reality. But George said there was somebody else he wanted me to meet, that we had a new surgical oncologist who also was a Ph.D. chemist, and her name's Dr. Susan Clare. And so they called her, and she came over. And the reason they wanted her to meet me was she's a genius. She's She's so smart in four languages that it's scary. And she had been working in Germany, and while she was there, she had developed a data system for tracking tissue, and she needed money. Well, I've got money. And you could use a data system. I could use a data system. The last thing I want to do, it had been a long day, was to go sit in a basement and look at someone's database. But I went, and I was enthralled. It was everything Brian told me that we needed. So she and I shook hands. I would help her develop the database with the peachy money, and she would let us use that database for the tissue bank. But what happened was really fabulous because as a surgical oncologist doing breast work, she was the perfect person to go into these breasts and pull those cores out. And she got hooked on that idea (laughs) because she's a Ph.D. chemist and she realized the value of normal. So I always say... I'm good, but I'm not this good. <laughs> this was meant to be. I mean, if you look at just the trips around the building, the meetings, the timing, it was meant to be. And this was still under the auspices of the Catherine Peachy Fund. Yes. So how did how did this become the Komen Tissue Bank? Well, we started out with blood collections, and God love Komen. They let us do it on the day of a race which was stepping out of the box for them, but their race is real close to the med center. And this was in Indianapolis. This is in Indianapolis. Within a half hour, we'd broken every record for the collection of tissue. We did 800 women in one day, literally. I mean, they were wall to wall. Everybody was blown away. It was fabulous. And this is with volunteers. Everything about this project, to the 2,000 women we've done today, every surgeon, medical oncologist, phlebotomist, radiologist, people who help run the events. We only have five staff, and yet we're the largest in the world. So we started doing blood on the day of the race, and we did that a couple of years. And by then, everybody was a believer. Women will come, and they kept they wanted to come back. How many times can we donate? So it was time to try the gold standard, which was tissue. Now, that meant we had to do a lot of work with lawyers, and Peachy was able to pay for a lot of this because there was no grant. There was, there was no money. But I was so glad we had the money. We had lawyers. Eric Meslin is a world-renowned medical ethicist. We had to understand how do you inform women that they're going to do something that's never been done before. And it was for unspecified research. We're going to bank this. This is like when you put your money in the bank hoping someday you can do something wonderful. So this is the concept. So how do you inform women of this? And then the other thing is in order for the tissue to have value, we needed to know everything we could about these women. They were filling out six and seven page questionnaires about their personal medical history and exposures to carcinogens and all of this. And then that would go into a HIPAA-protected database that Sue had created with one super user. So it was all barcoded and what they call anonymized. Nobody could look at anything and figure out whose this was. But a lot of people still think the public will have trouble with that. But what they underestimate is women want this over so badly that IU is trusted, Coleman is trusted, the physicians they were working with were trusted, and they they were willing to make that risk assessment and do it. And it was absolutely fabulous. And the women came. We knew we could get the women to do blood. The next thing was, will they give us breast tissue? And Anna Maria said, well, I can't ask for it if I haven't done it myself. So these two (laughs) fabulous physicians, and they are heroes because for physicians to step out of a box, which is designed by history, law, and ethics, and do something that's never been done before takes a huge amount of courage. And it's a risk to them because failure or mistakes would impact their reputations in their careers, which they fought hard for. So Anna Maria was our first core, and Dr. Sue Claire pulled the core of tissue from Anna Maria. And after that, we were off to the races. We'll take a break right now. When we come back, we'll hear about the next project for the tissue bank. 
We've been speaking with Connie Rufenbarger, one of the leaders of the Komen Tissue Bank and a breast cancer advocate for research. We'll go to break with this song Connie selected. It's Angels Among Us by Alabama. This is Gina Asher for Profiles. We'll be right back. I was walking home from school on a cold winter day. Took a shortcut through the woods and I lost my way. It was getting late and I was scared and alone. But then a kind old man took my hand and led me home. Now mama couldn't see him Oh, but he was standing there And I knew in my heart He was the answer to my prayers Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome back to Profiles. We're talking with Connie Rufenbarger, who helped launch the Komen Tissue Bank, a repository for healthy breast tissue that researchers around the world are using to learn more about how cancer forms in the mammary glands. You work very closely with uh, the two doctors you mentioned from the IU Simon Cancer Center. That would be Dr. Storniolo and Dr. Claire. The three of you really have formed a tight bond, it sounds like. We are such an unusual blend. You have a medical oncologist who had come originally from industry. She was at Lilly, world-renowned for her clinical trials, a surgical oncologist with a Ph.D. in chemistry, and a consumer advocate who's had breast cancer twice and multiple, many, many years of working in the field as an advocate, a lobbyist, and a fundraiser. So you can only imagine that there's some Oh, pretty strong personalities there, and so different. But the trust, we trust each other. You have to trust each other. The belief that we really actually, by pooling our combined resources and experiences and talents and networks, that we could actually make a difference. Because these physicians, I don't think people, unless you are on the inside, can grasp what it's like. They start at 7.30 in the morning with meetings. They see patients who sometimes they have to give very sad news to. They get very attached to their patients. As a medical oncologist, Anna Maria follows her patients for years and years. These are tough things to send them into clinical trials where you know you're going to really change the quality of their life for a year, and you're hoping it works. And then you take Dr. Claire, and these women, you know, as a surgical oncologist, and she often works uh, and does surgery at Wishard with all different types of women in different types of circumstances, and you have to give them the very best of you every time. And you may see 15 women in one day. You may do four surgeries or five surgeries. And each of these patients deserves the best of you, and so do the people in the waiting room or in the exam room with them. Huge demands. And then if you choose to be in an academic setting like IU, which is our only really huge medical center in Indiana, teaching center, you also are expected to write, to do research, to be published, and we travel constantly to medical meetings. IU is is a member of very elite translational breast cancer research consortium, which is leading institutions in the country. And Anna Maria and Dr. Claire and myself are all on that representing IU and a lot of work before you go and then they get you up early and they work you till 10 o'clock because they've brought from 14 institutions the leading experts in breast cancer research in this country. So when they've got you there, they work you hard, but then you've got to turn around and get back because you've got patients the next day. They also have families, they have children, they have parents, and they have spouses. You know, I would walk through fire for those ladies. They put their personal reputation, their medical reputations on the line to do this. But the lives of research 
physicians and physicians in general is not what I think we as the public view it to be. We've been talking about how the uh, Komen Tissue Bank came to be known as the Komen Tissue Bank. Tell us about Komen's input. After we had done our first collections of blood and taken the first tissue from Dr. Stoniolo's breast, and we knew that our focus needed to be on the tissue, we realized that the biorepository of tissue is a very different concept from vials of blood in a freezer. And now we're looking at big dollars, more dollars than the Catherine Peachy Fund could provide. And the one funder who is agile, focused, and more available, we thought, would be Coleman. And we were already working with Coleman in Indianapolis. They had started this. So I get a phone call. I'm in Warsaw. And Sue Claire says, Dr. Claire says, Connie, can you be in Dallas tomorrow? I said, yep. She hung up. <laughs> so I get a plane ticket. I get to Dallas, and we have a meeting with Komen, with the president and the CEO of Komen. So with no paperwork, nothing, we walk into this meeting. We go up in the elevator, and we meet with Hala Mottenberg and my dear friend Diana Rowden, who works at Komen National. We do our pitch about what it's, this is all about, and she looks up, and the doctors are used to writing proposals that takes six months to a year. It's, it's a long process to get money. Makes me nuts. But they're patient. And she said, I, well, you're living from day to day, paying your bills with whatever you can borrow from exam rooms and what Connie can give you and that type of thing. What would it take to keep the lights on for a year? Well, the doctors thought they were going to have to go back and write a proposal. And she said, no, you need to tell me, what is it going to take? And I said, a million dollars will get us freezers, some staff, some money to make this happen, and we will guard every penny. And she said, well, I think we can do that. So we thanked her, and she had another meeting to go to, and we went out. And the, the atrium, the elevator's on an, at, in an atrium, and it's glass on three sides. And we get in the elevator very quietly, and we started just jumping up and down and <laughs> grabbing each other and giggling and everything. And then we turn around and we look out. <laughs> and all, all of the people that were going by who see these three people losing control. But that Talk about an awe moment. We could do it. With a million dollars, we could do it. We could have breast tissue from healthy women in freezers available to anybody in the world with a good idea. So then you were out to collect. How many of these collection events have you staged? We do five a year, and we do between 100 to 150 women at each collection. It takes five or six surgeons to volunteer an entire day. We have a complete lab that has to be set up. And then we have 60 to 80 volunteers from the community and nurses and phlebotomists uh, there to do a collection. And sometimes you're not there, there being the med center or some hospital facility in Indianapolis. I mean, you you take this show on the road. How do you transport all of that, or, or do you transport it all? Well, what well, are the logistics of pulling they're this huge. off? They're huge. They're huge, and we meet constantly, and we have Wheaton Moving Company who actually moves us anywhere as much. I mean, we are a big show when, we, when we're on the road. Even when we have it at IU, they have to move it from our facility at Wishard to the breast center. They bring it over, we set it up, we break down all the rooms. They come back the next day, God love them, and they take it all back and store it for us at no charge. Everybody does these things for us at no charge, which is just a miracle. We do not take the tissue collection per se on the road often. We've done it in Indianapolis. We have to find a medical partner, a hospital or facility or a clinic. We've done it in Bloomington. Bloomington was fabulous. It was I cannot say enough about the the hospital and the people who helped us. The people in Fort Wayne were wonderful. Um, actually, we've been given a half a million dollar grant by Coma National to do this in Kenya. Oh, my gosh. Well, if you look at African-American women, they have more often than Caucasian women a triple negative breast cancer, uh, which less is known about, and we don't have the real targets yet. In African-American women in the United States, they often are this beautiful blend of many different nationalities. But if you go to Kenya, we may be able to pinpoint if that difference is specific to them by getting normal tissue in Kenya. So, But taking it on the road, again, is legal, ethical, 
and then the logistics. Mm-hmm. You have to make sure wherever you go that women are giving this to you with clear understanding of what's going on. You have to do it so that if there's an adverse event, if something happens, they have access to medical care. So, yes, it's it's kind of like the circus is coming to town. <laughs> At the time of this recording, you and your huge team of volunteers are planning the Komen Super Cure. And this will be a tissue collection event, time to take advantage of all the visitors to Indianapolis the weekend before the Super Bowl is held there. What do you expect to gain from this event? (laughs) First, I think we're all going to lose weight, be exhausted, and be somewhat (laughs) deliriously happy. You know, we do 150 on a big day, maybe 160. We're going to do 700 women in two days. This means all of the fabulous people who have helped us for the last five years are on deck, 7.30 in the morning. We'll we'll start first on Friday night. We'll break down the clinic, and we're going to expand and use both sides, so we're going to be twice as big, and we will go longer each day. Our lab is going to be split. We're going to have two labs going because the, the tissue is fresh frozen within minutes. I mean, the woman's laying on the table. She sees the door open a crack, and that little Petri dish goes out, and they call them runners because they run. This is the most precious commodity, I think, in breast cancer research today, and we're very careful with it. So 700 women, and the focus, the Super Bowl committee, the host committee run by Allison Melanchthon, is beyond, beyond. They could run the world. They're eloquent. They're lovely. They're gracious. They're kind. And they think big. They have marshaled the women of Indianapolis to volunteer. But they said, what do you need? And what we need is money for research. We need diversity. You cannot do central Indiana and have a tissue bank full of Caucasian women and cure breast cancer and find the cause in all populations. It would be immoral. It should be illegal. And then we need for researchers around the world to become aware of this resource, which is available, and it is around the world. It's in Australia. The tissue's gone to England. So they have actually marshaled these amazing women in Indianapolis and across the state to reach out to populations in very specific and appropriate ways. So this collection will be to enhance the diversity. Now, we will be doing some Caucasian women because we need 18 to 80. As a matter of fact, the Zetas from um, IU have traveled twice by bus to Indianapolis. So we have these young women and, and some good diversity, actually, in their sorority. So this will be primarily to enhance our diversity. We've done videos to educate in Spanish. We have an African-American video about what this tissue collection looks like that's done with Dr. Kane and the ladies. We have been adopted by the Super Bowl, and this is the brightest light in the world, the show that's seen by more people, <laughs> and the team is fantastic. And this, again, it it just can't be an accident. I just still believe that if all of these wonderful things happen, it must be for a reason. The recurring theme during our conversation here has been women, 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 women who aren't taking no for an answer, such as you, women oncologists, researchers, and then there are the donors. How do you encourage or, or enroll all of these women who are donating? We, ne- we did not advertise. We did not have great outreach. We got the word out, and the, we had waiting lines of women who would show up without an appointment to do this. Women want this over. And one of the big takeaway messages, this is going to be bigger than breast cancer. This is going to be about normal controls in research in many other diseases. If you don't have a control, you don't know when something trips over to abnormal. So you have to have a, a, a control, but not just in breast cancer. So what I'm hoping is that the research community will say, okay, let's look at this model. It was hard for us to convince the internal review boards, although I use was beyond compare in being open and working with us to find a way to make it work, to let us take tissue from women who've not had disease. They're exposing themselves to risk. I think what this says is that in order to protect human subjects, they've created barriers around research, around researchers, and around donors. And what we need is our equal vote. Instead of telling us what we're allowed to do, we need to tell you what we want to do. Researchers need to be allowed to tell us what they need. 
and they need normal controls. They also need serial biopsies within a clinical trial, but they're not allowed often to ask for those. So all those women in that trial are then lost, and that opportunity is lost. I hope this opens the conversation about we're willing to probably do an awful lot more. The history of what we did with syphilis, the history of what we did with cervical cancer in medical research is very sad. It's wrong, and it taught us a lot of lessons. But it can't keep us from moving forward. It can't hold us prisoner. And I think the public has demonstrated. And and we say it's about women, but to tell you the truth, there are men volunteering in every job. We have men surgeons. We have male consenters. We have men in our labs. And I have to pat them on the head because they're very, very good, and we couldn't do it without them. But but it is the women who are donating the breast tissue, although men keep asking, when can we donate? Mm-hmm. Because there is male breast cancer. Mm-hmm. One question our listeners have is, does it hurt? We started out with one system for extracting the tissue, and we numbed the breast. And at times with that system, I think there was discomfort. We never had anybody jump off the table. But women say, yo, I've had two kids. I can handle this. But we're using a new system. We've been using it now for for several collections, and it's by a company that actually was developed in Indiana. It's called Hologic, where the instrument, you, you do a small nick, you inject all the lidocaine so the breast is numb. Then once the needle is inserted, they press a lever with their foot, and this actually provides suction, which gently pulls the tissue out. This has dramatically not only changed any discomfort, but we can do many more women in a much shorter time. So going from 80 women to 150 is a huge leap. So this Hologic system has created a phenomenal opportunity. And you talk about, there again, the beauty of this. These systems are big, and they actually bring five to seven of those themselves, pay for it, send texts with them, and come and take care of those pieces of equipment every day we do a collection. We simply could not ever afford to do a collection if we had to pay for that. Anyone who does want to know more can check out the website, which is comantissuebank.iu.edu, which outlines how you can be a donor and how you can be a volunteer. Do you attend all these collection events, and what is your role there? I've only missed one, and I didn't have any choice about that one. I just There was no way I could be there. I wouldn't miss it. I have to tell you from the moment you walk in until the moment you leave, it's like a ballet. The women walk in. I've put my arms around women who wanted to do it, but they were kind of teary because they were afraid. There's so much love, and everyone is so grateful, and... There's just a lot of hugging and laughing, and we serve smoothies and great coffee and um, probably some of the best days of our lives, I think. And then our donors want to come back and volunteer because they see this is really like a, a big party. <laughs> Dr. Storniolo has called you an indefatigable consumer advocate, and your resume is stuffed with project leadership and accolades, and the list of committees that you're on and that you lead is huge. What is your typical day like? <laughs> well, I always feel a little bad. Of course, it sounds like I need to get a life or a hobby, but I get up and I have my coffee and I turn my computer on and I keep thinking, I've got to get dressed. I've got to get dressed. And sometimes it's 2 o'clock and I think, I'm so glad my husband doesn't come home for lunch because I'm <laughs> sitting there in my PJs. No makeup, hair isn't done. It's a lot because I still have to run the peachy fund and raise money. Money is such a critical part of this. I mean, we we would stop if if everybody wasn't so generous. And then I finally had to get a a second home in Indianapolis because I was here so much. And even though my children are fabulous about putting me up, I think I could wear out my welcome. Uh, It is a lot of travel. I'll be in Dallas twice in February. I go where the bank goes. I'm here in Bloomington. But... You know, if we're a part of changing this, Anna Maria always wants to just pop me when I say we're going to change the world. But I think there's a possibility that we're going to be part of the change that would never have happened without all these amazing people and these amazing things that keep happening. Uh, it's, it's, I'm kind of addicted to the excitement and the anticipation. But some advocates tire of carrying the banner. It can be really wearing, especially a survivor like yourself. Sometimes you're just really 
surrounded maybe too much by it. It, it doesn't sound like this is you, uh, but some people do end up wanting to put breast cancer aside for a while in order to move on to something else or move and on. And I encourage that. To, to be quite honest, when I, I work with a lot of women when they're newly diagnosed and they want to jump in and they want to work. And I really say, get through your treatment, get some hair back, get your feet under you, because you will become addicted to the excitement of this cause. But I also have a daughter, a daughter-in-law, a sister, a mother, two beautiful granddaughters. And I thought at 34 that it was a slam dunk that they would never have to face this. And the day that my daughter turned 34, she also had an appointment at the Breast Cancer Prevention Program. And we were still not looking really to prevent it, but to find it early. So I guess I'm like a pit bull and I've bitten into this and I I just can't imagine not doing everything that I can because I'm healthy, I survived, I can afford to do this work, which not everybody can. And we, we need a lot of advocates, but a lot of women don't have the time. And I love the people I work with, and I love the donors. Breast cancer is one of the most prolific healthcare topics in the news. We're bombarded. We hear about foods that affect breast cancer, either positively or negatively, about the usefulness of screening tools like mammography. What is your advice to women? And that would be survivors, women at high risk, women who hope to avoid cancer of any kind. Well, I think we hear a lot about it because the women have taken this on to save their daughters and their sisters. And they, we know how to use the media. We know how to raise money. And we, we had not seen that there was sufficient progress. So the most important thing is the reason women are confused. If, there's, if something doesn't make sense, it's because you don't know something. And whether you're a, a, a woman or a researcher right now, we don't know what causes it. We have some very good ideas about too much red wine, uh, obesity. Uh, there are certain uh, types of behavior. You know, smoking impacts your whole body, lack of exercise. You need hard data. So I don't think there are easy answers. I was on the mammography panel the first time when we were called murderers because we could not make the scientific recommendation for women to have mammography screening annually at the age of 40. The reason we couldn't do it was the data didn't support it. There's a lot we don't know. Mammography is hugely effective in the right woman at the right time, the right age. It misses a lot of breast cancers. So then they say, well, okay, don't do self-breast exams. They don't help anymore. You have to know your breasts because mine was felt by a physician. I probably would have felt it at 34, you know, 30 years ago if I'd been doing a breast exam. I think read appropriate literature. There's good literature. You can go to Komen. Susan Love does a good job. Go to well-respected resources. And then each woman is different because the breast changes every year of our lives from puberty to pregnancy to menopause. This is one of the few organs that changes that much. Our, women, our weight goes up and down like a yo-yo, and the fat in our breast changes. You need to know your breast. You need to have a physician, and you say, listen, I want a good breast exam. I want you under my arms, up my neck, and you need to say, get in there and pound around, and then look at your risk factors. You know, are you actually at high risk based on the Gale model? Get on the internet. Find out what would put you at high risk. And then in Indiana, you actually can go to the Catherine Peachy Breast Cancer Prevention Program at IU. If you don't understand your risk, have an appointment, a consultation, and they will go through everything with you and tell you what you should be doing. But the reason women are confused is because the science is still very confusing. That's why we want the normal controls. We want facts. We know the next challenge for you is the upcoming Super Cure, where the tissue bank hopes to collect more than 700 samples over two days. <laughs> Assuming you all survive and, <laughs> and uh, move on from there, what, what would be next? Well, the most important thing, and it's so exciting, and there again, it's the first in the world, is we are going to publish the data and the characterization of the tissue in the bank on the virtual tissue bank. And Oracle gave us a million dollars to buy a server to do the research on and to create this virtual tissue bank. So no information will be siloed. There will be no secrets. It's been so beautifully designed through a partnership with IU and Purdue that you're going to be able to look at 
the mammogram of a woman, her medical history, and the tissue collected from her breast, and do research online, anywhere in the world, for free. We've been speaking with Connie Rufenbarger, one of the leaders of the Komen Tissue Bank and an advocate for breast cancer research. You can learn more about the project at comantissuebank.iu.edu. Connie, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. It was great fun. As we leave you, we'll hear a bit of John Denver's Poems, Prayers, and Promises, music that Connie says inspires her. This is Gina Asher for Profiles. Thanks for listening. I've been lately thinking about my lifetime All the things I've done and how it's been But I can't help believing in my own mind I know I'm gonna hate to see it end Seen a lot of sunshine, slept out in the rain. Spent a night or two all on my own. And I've known my lady's pleasure, had myself some friends. The program you just heard was recorded in January of 2012. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Pascash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.